Amen. Well, <clears throat> I want you to think this morning a little bit about how, you know, uh, I'm always talking about blind spots. You know, I'm always talking to people about my life and about their life. And we all have blind spots in our lives, things that, um, you know, we just don't see. We ought to see, but we don't see them. And uh, sometimes they're uh, blind spots relationally with our regards to our family, or maybe it's occupationally. Uh, sometimes it's uh, spiritual. And, but there are some blind spots, some spiritual blind spots that I think are more prevalent than others. And there are some that are almost universal. And uh, for, for us, I think one of them is what we're going to talk about today, which is when it comes to being a Christian, well, we, we, we got a pretty good handle on um, how that takes place. We, gotta, we understand. We talk a lot about um, the process of salvation. We recognize that God gave His Son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sin, that He would, in His death, burial, and resurrection, He reconciled us to Himself so that we, all of our sin would be forgiven, past, present, and future. And so upon salvation, we will uh, spend all of eternity in heaven with God. We got that. We also, once we get saved, we do a pretty good job. We don't always get it right, but at least we do a good job of sorting out uh, what comes next as far as our responsibilities go. You know, when we start to, uh, as we start to walk as a new believer, uh, hopefully we're in community with other people. We you know, understand that there are certain spiritual disciplines that we need to exercise in our lives that will cause us to grow. And so we do a reasonable job with that. We talk a lot around here about the discipleship process. But there's a missing component where there tends to be a huge blind spot is, well, what is God doing during this time? What is God doing in between justification and glorification? What's God doing between the moment of our salvation and the moment we take our last breath in this life? Do we understand God's activity in our lives? How does God work in our lives? And this is what I think most of you would say. If I asked you this question, you'd say, well, he gives us his spirit and he works through his spirit. Well, that's not wrong but I'm being more specific. How does that work? Like, how does it work? What's the process that God uses to work through work in our lives? Because, see, God didn't make us robots. He gave us free will. And so when we get saved, we still have free will. And so we have the free will to obey. We have the free will to disobey. And we have the free will to do a lot of different things in between. And so how does God, if we, if we do this, how does God respond to that? If we do that, how does God? Most people can't articulate how God works. How God? Now, how God works shouldn't be a mystery because the Bible lays it out. And it's the same pattern all through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. It's the same. And I think understanding this could be extraordinarily valuable to us. And God, through the book of 
Hosea is talking to his people, his children, which is us, me and you. He's talking to Israel. And they're, the way that they're responding to the things that he's doing, and he shows us this consistent pattern that we see all through Scripture. So let's get our listening guides out, and let's look at the first thing God does. The first thing God does is he calls us to obedience. He calls us to obedience. Now remember, we have free will. So he may call us to obedience. He may command us to obedience. But you don't have to obey. So let's see what Israel does. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. God's speaking to his people, and he says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. Now, this is interesting because what in the world is God bringing up this story from Genesis 32 for in the middle of the prophecy of Hosea. In this book where God's used this prophet to marry a prostitute and have children as an example to the way he relates to his people. And so in this story, we've learned a lot, excuse me, a lot of things about God. And even now, God's teaching us, again, through another example of how he deals with us as his people. And he brings up this story of Jacob. Now, you, most of you are probably familiar with this story. Maybe some of you aren't. It's in Genesis 32, so you can make a note there to the side if you want to go home and read it and uh, familiarize yourself with it. But the name Jacob, his name was Jacob. It means heel grabber. And it, the Bible tells us that Jacob and his brother Esau battled one another in their mother's womb. And Jacob was born sort of grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. He was the second born. And the, the term heel grabber or grasper of the heel, it, it, it's meant to describe somebody who is uh, tricky or who is sneaky or is deceiving, working behind your back. And this ended up becoming the dominant characteristic of Jacob's life. See, Jacob was always second. He was born second. He was second in strength. He was second in the love of his father. He was always second. And so because he was always second, he was always striving and working and and conniving and scheming to get ahead. And so he was very active and he was always, you know, working a plan to try to beat the system because he was always behind and he was always trying to catch up. Always trying to use his wits to win the day, if you will. Now, any Jewish person who ever read the prophecy of Hosea would immediately know this whole story. All of it. And would immediately be brought back to uh, the biggest example of the way Jacob was, which was 
swindling his older brother Esau out of his birthright. Many of you know that story, which is what he did. And that's just another example of how Jacob was always working. He brings up, Hosea mentions, God's mentioning here about him struggling with an angel. Jacob was out in the wilderness trying to do things his own way. And he, a man comes into his camp. They end up wrestling. You know this story. As they're wrestling, he realizes he's not wrestling a man, but he's wrestling God. He's wrestling with God. And when he realizes that, the person who's always tried to manipulate things and make things for his own advantage, and you know, he says, I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. And so Jacob had an encounter with God, and he limped the rest of his life as a remembrance to the fact that you don't mess with God. God is, uh, of course, God could have snapped him in a billion pieces if he would have wanted to, but he didn't want to. He was gentle, but he left him a lasting reminder, if you will. And so Israel and Judah are like Jacob. Me and you are like Jacob. In other words, the people that God's speaking to then and now, well, Oftentimes, we would go through prescribed religious rituals. See, these, the people in this very context, they were very religious, and they were going to the temple, and they were sacrificing and celebrating the feast days. And they believed that by doing this, they inevitably were binding God to bless them or to protect them. Or by doing the, the things that they felt that they needed to do, it was obligating God in some way to respond favorably to them, which is exactly what people do today. Exactly. People think that if they go through the forms of religion, if they do the, the things that uh, God requires them to do, then he's somehow obliged to prosper them. And this is completely false. And here's why it's false. It's false because it reduces obedience to doing things. Obedience is not just doing things. It's far more than doing things. If you read your Bible for any amount of time, you're going to realize that God cares a lot more about why you do something than what you're doing. Now, He cares about what we do, but He cares more about why we do it. That when you get down to the heart of what obedience is, it has everything to do with motive, right? And so here, God's saying to his people, he's saying to you and me this morning, he's saying, stop trying to get ahead in your own strength. Stop trying to live like Jacob. You don't have to keep ch chasing after the good life on your own. Don't do that. It won't work. He's saying, you found me because I had already found you. When, you. when you found me, I'd already found you. I blessed you not because you did things that required me to bless you. I blessed you because I already loved you. That's what God's saying here. He's saying you don't need to strive and struggle to make your own way because all the things you're chasing after, when you get there, they just discourage you. They're empty. They don't satisfy you. Don't you see? 
Jacob spent his whole early life running after things, constantly trying to fix his problems, and it only got worse. And by the time he meets the angel in the, at the camp, he's on the run, and he's, his brother, he's afraid his brother's going to kill him, and he's going to just go back and turn himself in. He can't, he's, just, he's just at the end of his rope. Yeah. And God's saying, you're, you're free now. You're, you're free to, to live lives of, of mercy and justice and to wait on me in confidence that I'm going to provide what you need when you need it, just like I always have. Why are you always striving to get these things done and to maneuver to get yourself in the right posture so that things are going to work out your way? That doesn't work. And you know why that doesn't work? It doesn't work because, well, for a myriad of reasons. First of all, because we don't know what we ought to be doing. We're, we're terrible judges of what is the best thing for us to do. What should we be pursuing? What should we be doing? Well, we don't know that. God knows that. And, but, but our tendency has always been to be self-reliant. And see, here's what I'm trying to get you to understand is that you know this to be true in practice, but we rarely think of it. When, if you're here this morning and you're redeemed, if you're saved, then you understand that in a moment you were saved. In one instant, God reconciled you to himself. But then, although you were reconciled to himself, although you were given this brand new identity and you were made into a new creation, all of your Old instincts were still there, or still it took, and, and slowly over a long period of time, all these things start getting whittled down and shaved off and sorted out as you're learning how to think a new way, how to act a new way, how to, how to love a new way, all these things that, that God does his work instantaneously, but it takes a long time for all these pieces to start working out in our lives. And so in the gap, What's God doing? And by gap, I don't mean that there's going to come a point where you get it all figured out. I mean the gap is between the moment you get saved and the moment you die and you go to heaven. Because you're never going to get it all figured out in this life. There's always going to be this process working all the time. And so these things are inside of us. These, these old instincts, the way that we, we, we're used to reacting when this happened, the way we were taught to do this, the way we've always done it in the past. And, there, and about the time we think we got under control, it jumps up again and reminds us again that it's still there. Yes. See, people want to call themselves Christians because they did something. They want to reduce obedience to an act. They want to call themselves Christian because they prayed a prayer, because they went to a church, because they talked to a preacher, because they filled out a card, because they got dunked in some water. But listen, being a Christian isn't because you did something. The evidence of Christianity is that now that something has happened, you're now different. Your life bears witness that there's a change. It's not that you just did something. You went to some revival or some camp or made some decision, but there's no life change. That everything today still looks like it always looked. Like there's no reordering of your life. Your priorities are still the same. You're still striving in your own strength. You're still chasing the God of materialism or acceptance or success or comfort and security. 
See, the truth is, is that there's a lot of people calling themselves Christians, but their ambitions and their instincts and their priorities look exactly the same as their co-workers or their neighbors who don't even know Jesus. But they just call, think about this. How would you, how do you make this leap? Because you think obedience is just an act. I did this, therefore this is what's happened. But yet nothing in your life bears any witness that anything's changed. The people that God's talking to were, were convinced that everything was fine because of something they did. 3,000 years later, for a lot of people, nothing's changed. It's still the same way. Listen, God didn't save us to give us a new hobby. Christianity is not just something that we do on Sunday morning. Like, that's my new hobby. I go to church on Sunday mornings. That's what we do now. We go to church on Sunday mornings. We like it. We like the people there. We like the music there. We like the, the, the short sermons there. We like the, we like the, you know, just kidding. We like the, what do we like? We, we, our friends go there. So we, so it's just a new, it's our hobby. Well, nothing else has changed in our life, but now we've just got this new thing. That's our new thing we're doing. Notice in verse six, he says, so you, by the help of your God, return, observe. What are you going to... So, so he's saying return, right? He's calling us to obedience. But what does obedience look like to God? Does he say return and do the things I say? Return and do this and this and this. Return and go to step one, step two, step... No, he says return and what? Observe mercy and justice. See, that's not... Those aren't things, that's a way of life. And then wait on God continually. That means just be patient that God is going to provide the things you need when you need them. Now, let me tell you something. If you believe that obedience to God is just doing a thing, and now that you've done the thing, you're done, and that's all you need to do, you know what you're not going to be? You're not going to be a person who's merciful. You're not going to be a person who seeks justice on behalf of others. No, you're just going to go about your same life. And you're certainly not going to be a person who patiently just waits on God. You're going to be just like Jacob. You're going to be trying to do everything you're trying to do. If you would have met Jacob walking through the wilderness, if you would have bumped into him and shared camp with him, and you would have said, well, hey, Jacob, what's your story? Are you a Christian? What do you think he would have said? A hundred percent. He would have told you his story. He said, well, I did this and I did this and I did this, so I'm good. And he was a mess. And the Israelites are the same way, and many of us are the same way now. See, obedience to Jesus is about a new reality that we get to receive. We don't obey God. Christianity is not obeying God because you have to. Christianity is obeying God because you get to. It's really what it boils down to. It's, it's getting a new clarity because realizing that every time, every time me and you have an opportunity to obey God, you know what we forget? There was a time in my life when I didn't have the opportunity to obey God. Like, wow, 
I get to obey God. See, before, for the first 25 years of my life, I didn't have that opportunity. But now I get it. Now I get that opportunity. See, now I realize every time that I obey him, I'm declaring I'm doing this because I know that this is where life is found. Because I know who he is. See, real obedience is not doing what we must do. It's doing what's better. Whenever you obey God, what, it doesn't matter it, what it is. Anytime you obey God, it's always better than the alternative. The, the tragedy is, is when you do that and you don't know that it's better. And that's when you start going through the motions. See, that's the problem. Religion wants to masquerade itself as Christianity, and it's not. Religion is not relationship. Those are two different things. They're two completely different things. We don't obey God because it makes God love us. We obey God because we realize God already does love us. That's why we obey God. So the first thing that God does in our lives is he calls us to obedience. So what do you do when God calls you to obedience? Not your version of obedience. See, now, some of you, the light bulb's fixing to click on with this next conversation we're about to have because you're going to realize, oh, that's what happened in my life back there. And up until this point, you've been thinking, I never understood that because I obeyed what God said. Did you? Or did you just do something? So he calls us to obedience and then what's the second thing? He leads us to the wilderness. He leads us to the wilderness. So in verse 6, there's this beautiful inv invitation we've been talking about where he says, So you, by the help of your God, return so that you can observe mercy and justice and wait on God continually, right? There's this call to obedience according to God's definition of obedience. But notice just two verses later, we get the response in verse 8. And Ephraim, so that's the word for Israel. So Ephraim says in response to the invitation, Well, surely I have become rich and I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. What? Why? Because I've done the things I was supposed to do. I did the things I was supposed to do. I'm Jacob. I think that's obedience. That's not obedience. See, they had this pre-programmed response. This is the old instincts that are still carrying on. And God's dealing with them by leading them out into the wilderness. 
Look at the next verse, verse 9. He says, but I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. So because of your response, I'm going to remind you who I am and what I've done in the past. And then he says, I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. So he says, I invited you. I called you to obedience. You responded by reducing it down to just doing something. And so I'm going to take you by the hand and walk you into the wilderness. You're going to dwell in tents again. God's saying, I'm going to strip you of your comfort. I'm going to, I'm going to rid you of your self-assurance. I'm going to lead you into the wilderness where those things happen. Now, see, the wilderness is part of every Christian's journey. It's just part of the journey because this is how God works. But somehow... Some people just get so bewildered by this because they think that if I just do the thing, then God is, a, is a, obligated to do his thing so I won't go in the wilderness. No, you're just Ephraim. You're just Israel. That's not how this works. He doesn't just want you to do something. If he just wanted you to do something, he would just make you do it. If motive didn't matter, he would just force you to do it. He would just make us all robots, and none of this would be a problem. But he didn't. He made us the way he made us. And that's why he deals with us the way he deals with us. And what do we do when we go in the wilderness? What do we all do? We all Think, when we get in the wilderness, that the problem is the wilderness, isn't it? Now, you know, every one of us thinks this. The minute we go in the wilderness, we think the problem is the wilderness. We think, well, this is not right. This is wrong. This season of difficulty or this time of instability or, you know, I, my, where it might be where you're, it's a loss of comfort or it might be where, you know, it's a lot bigger. But whatever the problem is, we think the problem is the problem. But is it? Is the problem the problem? In other words... God leads his people. He says, now I'm going to lead you into the wilderness. Is the wilderness the problem? No. The problem is the way they defined obedience. The problem is the response of God's call to obey. Got a light bulb coming on, maybe? The wilderness doesn't create the problem. The wilderness isn't the frustration with God. That's not it. The wilderness reveals what's already in our heart. The wilderness is what's going to get to the root of, the bottom of what's going on in our lives. I don't think you're convinced. See, here's what we do. I mean, me, you, every single one of us, we think Look, we get in the wilderness. We're, all we can see is the wilderness. We think that's a problem. And here's what we say. We say, if my circumstances would change, I would change. That's what we say. 
That, that is so incredibly wrong, but it sure does make sense to me and you. We think, well, if, if my circumstance would change, then I would change. If this thing would, 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 if God would fix this one thing, then I would be okay. Wait, what? Where do we come up with that? Who's God in that scenario? We are. We have now become the judge of the way things ought to be as opposed to the way they are. We now have become the author and finisher of our own faith because we've now decided that if this happens, that it will solve this problem, so I'll be able to do this. When did we become in charge? Oh, that's right, the minute we became Jacob. We're just a heel grabber. See, we want the blessing of God without the authority of God. When we say, if my circumstances would change, I would change, that is saying, I want your blessing without your authority. Because who's the one who has the authority to say what needs to change, us or God? God. So then why are we telling him what ought to be? You see, the wilderness isn't the problem. God uses the wilderness to reveal to us what's standing between us and his blessing. Now, understand very clearly what I'm about to say. When I say what's standing between us and his blessing, I mean his blessing according to him, not what we've decided is the blessing. We don't determine what the blessing is. We don't know what we ought to have or ought to be or ought. We don't know. We don't, we don't, that's not our authority. God is the authority. He's the one that determines that. And the wilderness reveals to us, resolves the issue that's keeping us between him and his blessing. See, he's a good father. And so how do we go into the, remember he says, return. He doesn't just say, hey, come back. Hurry up. Let's get this over with. He says, return, how? With the help of your father. In other words, how do you get in the wilderness? Does he just send you in the wilderness? Is he like an angry parent saying, go to your room? He just looks at you and me and says, go in the wilderness. No. He takes us by the hand and he leads us into the wilderness. How did Jesus go in the wilderness? Did he just walk out there by himself or was he led out there? How did the children of Israel get in the wilderness? Were they led? You and me, when we were in the wilderness, or if you're in the wilderness right now, you were led. God's led you there. He, he's holding your hand. He walked with you right into the wilderness. And it's a place that's hard and it's a place that's uncomfortable. And we think, well, why, God? Why, why am I in this wilderness when I did what I was supposed to do? You're learning something this morning. It's very valuable to know who God is and how he works. I have some questions here for you. Don't, you don't have to write them down because they're on the back of your handout. 
Three questions for the wilderness. If you answer these three questions, it'd be very, very beneficial to you when you find yourself in the wilderness. The first question is, where in your life are you exhausted from trying everything in your own strength and getting no results? See, if you can pinpoint the place in your life, in your life or in your thoughts or in your relationships, that, that, that specific place where you just keep hitting a wall, like you're in the wilderness, then ask yourself, where is it that I just keep hitting a wall? That is going to lead you to what it is that God's trying to accomplish in your life. The second question is, where in your life are you growing increasingly impatient and struggling to find rest? Notice one of the things when you, when you exercise correct obedience to God, you're, you live with mercy and justice towards others and you wait patiently for him. But when you reduce obedience to doing something, so just find out, well, where is this impatience and lack of rest in my life? It leads you to the wilderness. Some of you are in the wilderness right now, and you've been in a, the wilderness for a while, and you've been fixated on the wilderness, and you're looking at the wrong thing. Question number three, where in your life is your heart and your affections for the things that you know God wants for you, where have they become dry? Now listen, you need to pay attention now. Don't, this is not, when I say the things God wants for you, that's not what you want for you. It's what God wants. See, there are certain things that God wants for all of us, all of us. Universally, they're 100% true. So like uh, what I'm saying is, is that, see, some of you can get derailed and you'll look at question number three and you're going to get off into some really errant theological mess, some name it and claim it prosperity gospel. Like if you're here and you're a young person, you want to get married, so you think that it's God's will for you to get married, so we're, that's not what I'm talking about. That's what you want. It's not God's will for everybody to get married. I'm talking about what you know God wants for you because he wants it for everybody. See, God wants certain things for everybody, and he tells us in his word what they are. He says things like, it's my will for your sanctification, for everyone's sanctification. He wants you to grow in him. So are you growing in him? That's a good question to ask. He wants all of us to be loving and growing in our, are we more loving? He wants that for all of us. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm not talking about something you think God wants for you. I'm talking about things that God wants for all of us. And when you answer these three questions, you're going to see that they're indicators of where God, why God's leading you into the wilderness. Where is he leading you through the wilderness? What's the purpose of this time in the wilderness? But I can tell you this. Do not call me or email me or stop me in the hall and say, Pastor Tony, here's my situation. Why is God doing this in my life? I'm not God. I don't know. How do I know? I'm telling you everything I know about it right here. I can't answer that question. I'm not God. But I know he's trying to get rid of some old instincts and he's trying to get some new ones. I know that before this wilderness experience, there was an invitation to obedience and you either ignored it, blatantly disobeyed it, or you just turned obedience into doing something. 
And one of the dangers with the conversation that we're having is that some of you are so legalistic in your thinking that now that you're armed with this information, the next time you feel convicted about something, you're going to do it so that you don't go into the wilderness. And it's going to backfire. And I just said that. It's going to blow up in your face. Because you're mocking God. Remember what obedience is? It's doing what God says because it's better. It's better. It's better. Otherwise, you're just being Jacob. See, in the wilderness, God does things. All through the Scripture, you have the example in Exodus of the wilderness, but then all through the Scripture, all through it, there's a consistent pattern where this cycle takes place, where God calls people to obedience and he takes them in the wilderness, and it's always the same pattern and the same things are going on. And probably many of you never thought about this before. That God does things in the wilderness that are unique to the wilderness. That the wilderness is not, is, is, that there are good things that are happening in the wilderness. God's, that we're, look, we see the wilderness the wrong way. Remember, remember back in chapter 2 of Hosea, he said, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, talking about us, Gomer, bring her into the wilderness and speak kindly to her. We get in the wilderness. All we see is the wilderness. We're, we're making up lies. If this would change, I would change. All the things I've said today. And you know what God wants to do in the wilderness? He's speaking kindly to me and you. Look, he takes the people into the wilderness, the book of Exodus. Okay, think about this. He leads them by night by a pillar of fire, by a cloud during the day. When they need water, he brings water forth from a rock. He provides food in the, from heaven in the form of manna. He taught them to rest from their weariness one day a week in the wilderness. Their clothes didn't wear out in the wilderness, right? He taught them how to build a tabernacle and how to worship him where? In the wilderness. Now, how come he didn't do any of those things in the promised land? You know, he didn't do any of that in the promised land. As soon as they got in the promised land, guess what happened? Their feet swole up. Their shoes broke down. They look like your nasty feet. Bunions, corns, all kind of problems. But it was perfect in the wilderness. He took care of all that in the wilderness. He didn't send manna when they were hungry in the promised land. He didn't know water came out of a rock in the promised land. That only happened in the wilderness. In other words, maybe we've been seeing the wilderness the wrong way. Maybe one of the things that we've missed all along is that God gives us certain wonderful new things on the way, along the way. But we're so fixated on what we don't like about the wilderness that we haven't even realized that he's taking care of our shoes and he's taking care of our hunger and he's taking care of our thirst and he's doing all these new things that he hasn't done before and he's only going to do in the wilderness 
Could it be? Could it be that new stuff from God is tied to the wilderness? What? Could that be? A hundred percent. Look at what the Bible says, for example. This is just one example of what I'm saying. In Isaiah 43, one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, he says, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? Like God's saying, he's mocking you. Like, do you think you're going to miss it? Do you think I'm going to do a new thing? And it's going to be so obvious. Like, who doesn't notice their shoes don't wear out? Who doesn't notice there's food from the heaven? Who doesn't notice water from a rock? He said, I'm even going to make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Oh, hold on. Now, we're on to something now, aren't we? We've just discovered a huge illustration of how this blind spot has affected so many people. See, the church is filled with people that are wandering in the wilderness and have been wandering for a long, long time. And they've been out there wandering in the wilderness and all they see is the wilderness. They think the wilderness is the problem. And they hate new things. They hate new things. They, they read their Bible, but they don't know God. They don't understand how God works. They've missed the whole concept. God brings new things into our life in the, in the midst of the wilderness. But you know what? I'm so fixated on how much I hate this wilderness that I'm ignoring all of the principles the, the Bible teaches about the wilderness. And so I'm missing all these things that are happening. And it's evidenced by the fact that I hate everything new. See, sometimes what we do is we get comfortable in what God did before. And so we're, there was this time in your past where God did all these amazing things. And you live in the past. And you miss all the opportunities that are in the present and in the future because you live in the past. And let me tell you something. One of the worst things you can do is think that God's going to do today what he did yesterday. That's not how this works. He already did that. But the church is filled with people. Listen to me. They've been in the wilderness so long that they long to go back to a place in the past. And let me tell you something. Think, you know I'm right. They're more immature today than they were all the way back there. You know how that happened? They don't understand the wilderness. They want everybody to turn around and go back there. Bye. Have fun. I ain't going. That's not what the Bible teaches. You don't want to go back there. That's not what, that's what God did. That's not what God's doing. You read your Bible with clear eyes and a heart open to God, and you're going to see God is a God of amazing creativity and newness and freshness, and God's about what is God doing in your life today. Whatever God did in your life in the past, the value in remembering that is so that you'll trust him in the things he's doing today. 
But if you're remembering and longing for that in such a way that it's preventing you from trusting him and what he's doing today, you're working against the system. And therefore, you're never coming out of the wilderness. Because the wilderness isn't getting its work accomplished. See, God doesn't want our help. Think about how we got authority all wrong. We're, here we go again. Now I'm telling God, God, I just wish you'd do it like you did it back there. And God's going, you're not God. How many of us in here, let's be honest, how many of you, your prayer life is reduced to a list. All you do is tell God what he ought to do. What has happened? You don't tell God what to do. That's not prayer. Yes, God wants to hear what you think about things in the context of, hey, God, it'd be really great if you do this. But if you don't, it's because that's not what's best for me. So just thank you for always doing what's best for me. But how many people every day bow their head and say, God, do this, do this, do this, do this. God is not your errand boy. He's not your waiter. He's not your bus boy. His job is not to clean up your messes the way you think they ought to be cleaned up. You don't know who you're dealing with. But you're about to find out in just about five minutes. Think about how crazy we get goofed up about God. He doesn't want your help. He wants your trust. What God did in your past is so that you will trust him today. Don't you see that? God knows what he's doing. You believe it? Do you trust him? I mean, what's off the table? Do you trust him? Are you saying, here it is, God. I'm a blank slate. You can do anything you want. You can reorient my life any way you see fit. You can take anything away. You can add anything. You can change anything. I trust you. You see the problem? Instead, we just become Jacob. Well, God, I did this and this and this so you can do this and this and this. No, listen. When you're in the wilderness, he's Jehovah Jireh. He'll take care of you. He's your provider. He's there with you. He's holding your hand. Let God be God. Let him be that. So he calls us to obedience. He leads us into the wilderness. And what's the last thing he does? Throughout the whole Bible. This is what happens. This has happened in some of your lives a thousand times over. I'm not just teaching you this because I learned it from Hosea. I mean, this is my life story. If you walk with God, this is your life story. He calls us to obedience. Leads us to the wilderness. And then he shows us his greatness. 
That's what he always does. Always. Hosea 13, chapter 13. Go to chapter 13, look at verse 4. Then God says, Yet I am the Lord your God. Ever since the land of Egypt, so he's bringing this back up again. Again, remember, God's not saying forget the past. The past wasn't important. He's always referencing the past. Not so that you would dwell there, but it's always in reference to what? So that you'll trust him in the present. Ever since the land of Egypt. And look at what he says. And you shall know no God but me. For there is no Savior besides me. He says, I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. Now, now this is what he's saying. God's not saying, hey, you're, you're, you're blowing this out of proportion. The wilderness wasn't that bad. He's saying, no, it, it was the wilderness. It, it, was, it was hard. There was a drought. It was bad. You see the pattern? How this works in our lives? We rebel. God pursues us. Then he corrects us. Then we respond. He reminds us of his love. Repeat. We rebel. He pursues us. He corrects us. We respond. He reminds us of his love. Repeat. We just keep going around in the same circle over and over and over. Look. He says, I want you, after he leads us out in the wilderness, he, he says, let me remind you of who I am. And then he, the, notice what he says. You shall know no other God but me. Now, these are people filled with idolatry. And God's saying, yep, you're, you, you're making an idol out of your job. You're making an idol out of your family. You're making an idol out of money and materialism or acceptance or whatever it is. But you're not going to know any other God besides me because you're my son or my daughter. And I'm not going to allow that to happen. See, there's no Savior but me. The only thing that's going to save you is me. And I'm going to save you because, see, the moment you got saved, I put a 100% guarantee down of my son's blood. And so your salvation's happening. So regardless of how crazy you want to make this journey, regardless of how many wilderness trips you want to take or how long you want to stay there, however this is going to go, trust me, you could do all the things you want to do, but let's just get one thing straight. I'm never going to fail. You can try to serve another God if you want to. I'm about to tell you in a few minutes exactly how that's going to go down. But there ain't but one Savior, and it's me, and you're mine, and I'm saving you because it's really already been done. That's how this works. See, God's saying, he's saying, there's no season of your life that I haven't been present. See, we have a tendency to believe, like I've already said, that when we're in the wilderness, we're out there and God's not there. So like God sends us to the wilderness and we're separated from him, which is the furthest thing from the truth, which is why we totally get everything mixed up and we stay in the wilderness too long and all these problems happen. God's there. With, he's holding your hand in the wilderness. 
If you're God's son or God's daughter this morning, I want you to understand something. There's no tear that you've ever cried that he hasn't seen. There's no pain that you felt that he's not aware of. There's no loss. There's no disappointment. There's no situation that you've ever faced that's caught him by surprise. There's never been an act of rebellion in your life such that God looked at you, saw what you did, and second-guessed his saving work in your life. He's never second-guessed you ever, no matter how far you tried to go. You cannot serve another God. There will be no other Savior but Him. See, the fact that you're here today proves that there's still work that God wants to accomplish in you. It proves it. Or you wouldn't be here. See, the bottom line is, whether you realize it or not, you matter to God. You matter a lot more to God than you realize. In fact, you matter a lot more to God than you've ever realized. You mean way more to Him than you have ever really gotten your head around. So stop running. Because where are you running? He's always been there. When you finally get tired and stop running, he's already there waiting for you. You can't run away from him. So why are you running? But he doesn't just tell us about his greatness. He, he shows it to us. He ex gives us a vivid explanation of what it looks like. Look at verse 6. When they had pasture, they were filled. And they were filled, and their hearts were exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard. By the road, I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear, deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. You're like, what? Tear open their rib cage? What is going on? You know who God's talking to? He's talking to your idols. He's saying, whatever you try to make your God, I'm going to be to that thing like a mama bear separated from her cubs. You know what happens when you get between a mama bear and her cubs? You cease to exist. Because there's nothing that she won't do. There's nothing. There is no capacity for fear. Look, look, he says, I'll rip their rib cage open. Look down at verse 14. Then he makes this declaration. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. He's talking about us. I will redeem them from death. Oh, death, I will be your plagues. Oh, grave, I will be your destruction. 
pity is hidden from my eyes. You hear what he's saying? He's saying if you're his son or his daughter and you're here today, there's nothing going to stop him. Nothing will stop him. His love for you is ferocious. It's fierce. It's, it's unstoppable. It's unquenchable. It's unrelenting. He'll rip to shreds anything that comes near you. Listen, you see that last statement? Pity is hidden from my eyes. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I will have no mercy on anything that tries to stand between me and my people. I will obliterate anything that comes between me and you. Anything. Whatever it is that you try to make or come, whatever it is you try to exalt, whatever it is, I'll tear it down. Because I've invested everything in you. And you will be saved and you only, there is only one Savior and it is me. Isn't it interesting that Jesus comes along and he says the same thing. He gives us an explanation to the whole point of his life. And he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. It doesn't matter how much sin he pursues. It doesn't matter how much idolatry there is. It doesn't matter how far he tries to run. It doesn't matter what he's done. It does not matter. I will not cast out anyone who comes to me. But he's not done. And he says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And what is that, Jesus? Please enlighten us to what that is. And he says, this is the will of the one who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose none. Not one. Not one that he's given me will be lost. But should raise them up at the last day. Maybe if we understood what the wilderness was all about, if we understood God and how he worked and what he's clearly been trying to show us, we would cooperate with this beautiful work that he's trying to do in our lives instead of fighting against him. Because let me tell you something about God. If he's your heavenly father today, no matter what you think, no matter what you do, no matter what anybody tells you, no matter what anything, He will get you home. He will get you home. Because anything that tries to stop that from happening, He'll rip their rib cage open. That's the kind of God He is.